Hi, everyone. I'm Dan Harding, Editor-in-Chief of Power Modiot, and welcome back to the Power Modiot Podcast. Today, we're taking a slight detour from our fun, inspiring kind of stories to talk about a serious piece of news that is poised to impact a lot of boaters and the industry at large. NOAA is proposing a 10-knot speed limit restriction all up and down the East Coast from November through April, May, because of a diminishing population of right whales. This is something that's been a lot of confusion about. So to kind of cut through all the, the clamor, I had the chance to talk to John DePersonaire, who's the Director of Government Affairs and Sustainability for Viking Yachts, somebody who's extremely well-versed on this topic, to kind of give us the facts. So I thank you for joining us on this special episode. John, thanks for joining me today. Good morning, Dan, and thanks for having me on. Well, no, I, I, I really appreciate it. So I was hoping maybe we could just start out with giving our listeners and readers a brief synopsis of what NOAA is proposing in the name of right whales. Yeah, sure. So um, I think it's important first to just understand what's prompting this. And mm-hmm. you have to look at the status of the right whale. So Please. this was a species um, of whale that was commercially hunted for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it was a target species until um, it was commercially hunted to extinction last mm-hmm. century. And with that in mind, um, and being a long-lived species, it, it just takes a long time for this stock to um, rebuild its population size. So we were experiencing growth all the way up until about 2010. Um, and then we started to have some elevated mortality events associated mm-hmm. with entanglements in fishing gear, primarily lobster pots and traps, and um, with vessel strikes, that's the two primary sources of human-induced mortality on this on this species. Okay. So, with that, NOAA Protected Resources has um, moved forward with proposing a different set of rules that would have far, far-reaching impacts to address the vessel strike risk associated on right whales. So what they're doing is is fourfold. Um, it would expand the existing seasonal speed restriction zones. Mm-hmm. Currently, they are focused around the the major ports along the Atlantic coast. Um, you know, Boston, the approach to Block Island, Newport, uh, New York, Delaware Bay, Chesapeake Bay, mm-hmm. Cape Fear, all the way down to Savannah and North Florida. Instead of having those discrete areas where vessel traffic is bottlenecked, they're looking to expand them out significantly in, in scale. Um, in some areas, like off of New Jersey, it goes out 100 miles. Off of some of the islands in Massachusetts, it goes out even over 100 miles. So the, the geographic expansion is significant. Uh, the other thing they're doing is looking to, so just looking back to those original speed restriction zones were imposed upon vessels over 65 mm-hmm. feet, and they were required to go no faster than than 10 knots in those zones. And the thought there was that these, you know, this would capture a lot of the ocean going vessels, which, you know, um, are, you know, they have limited mobility in terms of responding to right. a whale if it's in their path. Um, and just their their sheer size uh, just creates a, a significant um, uh, trauma to the to the whale. So it's, it's you know, a lot of times if there's an encounter with a large ship, it's it's not going to, you know, bode well for the whale. So sure. 
that was really the, the vessel size class that was focused in that original set. What they're doing now in this proposed rule is looking to drop that down to vessels 35 and bigger. So that now includes a lot of center consoles, um, you know, small express boats, sure. um, some sport fish boats. And, um, you know, it's, it's a really a, a large amount of vessels that are going to be um, impacted and by actually, that. And just, just to bring a point home, you know, you, you touched on the regions. There's a, there's a map and a chart that you guys and also one that Noah has put out that we're talking pretty much the entire East Coast between the span of November to late April, early May in many cases. Is that fair? That's correct. Yeah. So basically from Gloucester, Massachusetts, mm -hmm. all the way past Cape Canaveral, right. um, you know, at some point during the year, you're not going to be able to go above 10 knots if you have a boat that's 35 feet mm -hmm. or bigger in the ocean. So this goes from the beach out depending, you know, and, and how far it goes out in that speed restriction zone, depending upon the state that you're in. So up north in the mid-Atlantic, it seems to go out much farther. Once you get to, um, you know, the Virginia-North Carolina line, it seems to squeeze into about mm -hmm. 20 to 30 miles out. But still, that covers a significant amount of ground. Right, right. Going out fishing, trying to get past that 30-mile-an-hour slow zone. I mean, that's at 10 knots. That's a that's a three-hour run now. And, and that's something that is absolutely missed in the proposed rule. So they they NOAA Protected Resources does talk about some of the potential impacts, mm -hmm. you know, on the industry side, meaning the commercial, recreational, um, and uh, boating sector. So they talk about delayed transit times. But you know, as any boater or fisherman will know, you know, it's, it really becomes impractical in a lot of cases for us to go to areas that we like to fish going 10 knots. Right. Um, you know, it's just, you just cannot do a recreational trip in that amount of time. And also you start to think about the, you know, the, the questions that arise with limited speed when you're dealing with safety, that's, because that's exactly a lot of times, you know, a lot of times our boats, you know, the speed becomes the speed of those boats becomes a safety element where you can fit in that trip in a, a, a favorable weather window. If right. you're required to go 10 knots, you may put that boat at risk of being out in weather that, you know, you really don't want to be in, you know, so you're going to have some really hard decisions now. And, you know, are you able to be, conduct that trip safely in the time that it's going to take you to comply with that 10 knot speed limit? I mean, if you spend any, any significant time out in the water, you know, 10 knots could be one of the most uncomfortable speeds in, in almost any condition, whether it's one to two footers or, or significantly more. That is almost always uncomfortable and, and unsafe in many cases. So that's a good point. Yeah, you're right. And, and what's interesting, too, you know, a lot of times, especially that, you know, the larger center consoles that would fall into the size class, you know, a lot of times they're not even on plane at 10 knots. And, you know, you think about their their footprint, you know, um, and strike risk. Mm -hmm. It's actually higher at 10 knots than when they're up on plane. And I know a lot of these boats, I know the boats that Valhalla Boatworks builds, you know, they have steps and they almost are riding on air when they're up on planes. So their footprint is is extraordinarily low at that yeah. point. Um, so they may be going fast, but their footprint is much smaller when they're actually at speed and up on plane. Uh, that, that's another common sense point. You know, I cut you off briefly before, but, you know, one of my, my first questions, when I first saw this proposal, it was kind of making the rounds on social media. A number of my colleagues and I were even talking about it. It's like this... This seems so ridiculous, so impractical. How do you, how would you police this? How would you enforce this? It, I think many people kind of dismiss this as 
this this can never be enacted. And and I was I was that way. I was like, this is so ridiculous. It, it almost isn't really worth my attention. But talking to you briefly yesterday, this is a major concern. There are very few checks and balances. Can you explain where the proposal stands now, the comment period, and then what stands in the way of making this the law of the land? Yeah. So, um, I'm, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with, you know, fisheries management, um, mm-hmm. that we deal with really all the time. Sure. And that falls under, um, a different law. That's the Magnuson act. And the Magnuson act outlines a very transparent public process. So if we are going to change or, um, add something to a fishery management plan, it often takes several years. And as many people know, it's, it's, open, you'll have multiple comment periods, multiple public hearings to provide the opportunity of the public and the the stakeholders to provide input in steering those decisions. This took place in a very atypical process. This is acting, this this proposed rule is coming from the authority under the Endangered Species Act and the Marine Mammal Protection Act. So this rule was under development for probably a year and a half, and we had Hmm. zero formal engagement with Office of Protected Resources in its development. Mm. So that's one aspect that people really need to understand, um, that this was not something that was done in concert with stakeholders or the public or the industry. This was done by one department under NOAA. Mm. So they they released the proposed rule on August 1st. Um, Viking Yachts and several other groups immediately filed for an extension Mm -hmm. um, to the public comment period because originally they were only giving us 60 days to review this rule, look at all the modeling um, approaches and assumptions that they use to come up with this risk assessment, which is driving a lot of these um, expansions to the, the size class of vessels and also the actual areas and timing of the speed restriction zones. So we've been diving into that. That takes a lot of time. Um, So we were able, fortunately, to get another 30 days to the public comment period. It now closes October 31st. And I I highly encourage people to um, just read the the proposed rule that's in the Federal Register. It it does not include all the technical memos and the environmental um, assessments that are uh, appendixes and other documents. But I think you get a really good understanding about how this was done, what some of the assumptions that they've used, how little information they have about our fleet, um, and really how um, how little input was provided. Um, sure. Because you know, when you start to read this, you're like, oh, why didn't we think about this? Or why didn't we suggest that? Because, you know, one thing that's really important for people to understand as well is that, you know, we, we've had speed restrictions in place, you know, since 2008. And NOAA, already admits that compliance with those speed restriction zones, again, this is for mm-hmm. boats 65 and older, over is really bad. Right. So it's interesting to think that, you know, instead of just saying, hey, let's focus on this first set of rules we put in place, let's try to get compliance really, really high, because we know those speed restriction zones should have some benefit to the right whale in terms of reduction of vessel strikes. Why don't we focus on getting compliance to a point that we're comfortable, not 28, 30% compliance, instead of moving forward with a proposed rule that's going to draw in boats that we have no way of understanding, even if they are complying, because we know 
currently that AIS is the primary tool of enforcing and monitoring the current speed restrictions. So if you start to bring in boats that are under 65 feet, which are not required to have AIS or transmit AIS data to, um, from their boat, there's really no way of knowing how to enforce this or even what the compliance rate is. So it's, our big thing is that we just really need, we really believe that the, the path forward here is that we need to put this action on pause, mm -hmm. bring the industry to the table. We are absolutely willing and eager to provide input on this, mm -hmm. help develop um, different technologies that we can push information about right whales out to the public and the operators so they can see real time where these, these individual whales are and we can avoid them. And really just trying to put forward a set of measures that protects right whales, but also is more realistic because right now what we're looking at is just not a practical or realistic solution to the problem. Let's, let's talk about that. Enforcement was going to be one of my questions and it really is it's so disappointing to hear that AIS which in my opinion is one of the biggest safety advances we've had in recent years could potentially be flipped and used as a tool to punish and fine boaters I find that uh, both uh, both disturbing and, and disappointing well yeah you're you're right and you know from just from Viking standpoint um, as I mentioned before a lot of boats well boats are not required to have AIS if they're under 65 feet. Right. However, most Vikings that come out of this facility, the customers will oh, they demand um, opt, it. Yeah. yeah, they'll they'll opt to have that because as you said, it's it's a significant safety feature. Mm -hmm. So that if you run into an issue offshore, you know, that AIS is transmitting your your vessel identification number mm -hmm. and your location. So for, you know, in terms of search and rescue, it's 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 paramount having that. Um, and you're right, you know, it's, it was designed for safety at sea. It was never designed to enforce either fisheries laws or speed restriction zones. And you're right, it, it really does compromise, you know, the thought process of someone saying, well, you know, should I, should I not even use this safety feature? Because if I'm, you know, right. and as you know, as an operator, you know, and we've had this happen before where people have been mailed violations based on their AIS data. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're if you're operating a boat in a say a following sea entering an inlet, you know where you have to kind of throttle up and be up say right up against that ten knot uh, speed you know limit. Yeah. You know, at one point you could be going eight knots. At one point you could be going thirteen <laughs> knots. Be just because if you know depending on where where that swell is right. and that following sea. So it's it's it almost puts the person in the risk of saying, well, gosh, I don't know if I really want to have my AIS on because it puts me at risk of having to justify or respond to a, a notice of violation that I may receive in the mail where I was at 12 knots in a 10 knot zone, you know? And so there's all kinds of issues like that. Again, I, I just don't see this proposed rule as being a real practical, sensible solution. There are, are better ways of addressing um, this issue. That's that's a good point, but I do want to stay on enforcement just for one one more question. And the the other prong probably that people you know that they would look to to enforce this is the Coast Guard. Now, in in my reading, it's my understanding that the Coast Guard was also had no involvement in this proposal. Is is, is that true? So I can't speak to how much involvement they've had mm -hmm. in the development of this rule. Okay. 
All I can say is that um, during the public webinars, this issue of enforcement was raised. Okay. And the response from um, NOAA Office of Protected Resources was that they were going to be looking to revising the U.S. Coast Guard rules on AIS carriage so that vessels under 65 feet or over 35 feet would be required to have transmitting AIS on their boat to help enforce this proposed rule. So with that said, we did reach out to Coast Guard um, and in paraphrasing what they said, they indicated that they had no intention of going down that path of revising the AIS carriage rules. Mm -hmm. So there does seem to be a dis disconnect there. Um, mm -hmm. And um, again, I, I know that Coast Guard was also citing this issue of, of safety at sea and navigational safety uh, using a, was it really appropriate to use a navigational you know, tool mm -hmm. and a safety tool for enforcement of something like this right john actually what i want to do is actually take take a couple steps back i uh i apologize i kind of jumped ahead the let's talk a little bit more about the current state of the right whale population you mentioned at the onset that there this is a species that's facing innumerable challenges but i want to get down into the into the numbers about the the strikes themselves i mean you'd read this proposal and and how extreme it is you'd be thinking people were running over right whales left and right but that's that's not the case, is it? No, it's not. Um, and it's interesting because, in fact, you know, right whales are are one of the few species, marine mammal species, that is actually declining. Um, if you look at a lot of the other big whale and you know some of the dolphin and porpoise species that are in our area, mm -hmm. most of them are stable or increasing. You know, so like blue whale, fin whale, humpback, uh, minkies, sperm whales. You know, all those pilot whales, which are really common at the yeah. canyon. Um, they're all stable or increasing. It's, it's really the issue of the right whale. So you asked about strikes, you know, just looking back at the numbers, and these are the known strikes. So yeah. NOAA Office of Protected Resources, does, it does indicate that we don't know about all strikes. Sure. But of the known strikes going back to 1998, they consider or they assume that there has been 24 known vessel strikes that have occurred since 1998. Since just 2008, there has been five strikes by vessels under 65 feet. So to your point, you know, this is not something like where we have, um, you know, a, a dozen or so strikes per year. You know, just looking at that 35 to 65 foot size class on average, and for some reason, there's been an elevated number in the past few years, and it just seems to be a random mm. act um, right now. but it's still less than one per year. Um, you know, th this is not something where we are running over whales all the time. And in fact, you know, in most cases when a, uh, a boat of that size class does interact with a whale, you mm -hmm. know, typically the outcome is catastrophic, you know, not, not right. just for the whale, but for the boat itself, you know, it's either, you know, significantly damaged where it has to be towed back to port or in fact it sinks, you know? So um, those are the kind of things that, especially being involved with a boat building operation, if that kind of catastrophic damage is happening, that boat yeah. is coming back to this yard because we know we have build specific parts like mm -hmm. struts, running gear, all that kind of stuff that has to be repaired. And, and in the, you know, Viking has been in operation since 1964 and just talking to Pat Healy of, of, about 
this issue, you know, he said he's never had a boat, a Viking come back into our yard in response to a whale strike. So it, it is a very, 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 very rare instance. What's driving this is just that there's so few right whales. And sure. on top of those two other issues I talked about, you know, vessel strikes and um, entanglement with fishing gear, you know, just understanding the reproductive output of right whales is important to understand as well, because it's just, they're just not reproducing very well, you know? So it's, it's a struggling stock, regardless of what we do in terms of regulations and speed restrictions on the boating community. This, this stock has challenges of its own. Um, it's just not producing enough calves. Mm -hmm. It's got genetic issues with its stock, um, you know, which are causing all kinds of issues. So the outlook is not very good. And, and our fear is that if we go down this path of this proposed rule, and right whales, just due to their biology and reproductive yeah, continue um, to decline. outcome, yeah, mm -hmm. continue to decline. This is not a, a management path that really bodes well for either right whales or the boating community, because I don't know what the next step is beyond the proposed rule, quite frankly. I, I really don't. And um, what we're thinking is that there has to be more constructive ways of yeah of addressing this issue. And, and one of the suggestions that we're really leaning towards is just trying to find a way of having real-time monitoring of right whales on an individual basis. And we absolutely think that can be done between aerial surveillance, either planes or drones. Um, there's now unmanned drones that, you know, sail drones and things like mm -hmm. that, gliders in the water that we could track these things with. Um, I know the Department of Defense could probably come up with an idea about how to track this just with <laughs> all their years of experience of tracking things like submarines and things like yeah, that. Yeah. So acoustic monitoring, uh, heat signature monitoring. I absolutely think that we could get to the ability of being able to track a significant percentage of the population. And then by working with, you know, marine electronics manufacturers, mm -hmm. with the marine industry like, you know, Viking and Garmin and Avionics and others, finding ways of pushing that information out to operators. So these whales are showing up real time on their plotters, on their radar screen as another target. That's so they can avoid that area or, you know, and I, I think that's the, really the only pathway forward. Um, and I, I know it's going to call, you know, not cause, but it's require resources and funding. But, you know, if we're committed to protecting right whales as, you know, ESA and the Marine Mammal Protection Act mandates, you know, let's put the resources there, you know, because I just do not see us getting much benefit out of the proposed rule on the table right now and what that may mean in the future, 10 years from now. It's it's such a good point. I keep coming back to this, John, because it's it feels like the marine industry and, and boating, recreational boating and fishing is being vilified here when in reality, we're the greatest resource. I mean, it's, I don't know people who care more about preserving different species and preserving the water and our oceans for future generations like boaters do. So, you know, let us, let us be come to the table, be part of the solution and not just uh, blamed for, for all the problems. Yeah. And, and that's a really good point, Dan. That's exactly what we are looking to do here. We are looking to be active participants mm -hmm. in the conservation story of yeah. right whales. You know, we, we are ready to bring, 
uh, resources and ideas to the table so we can find a way to reduce our risk of vessel strikes. Again, we we don't want to run over whales. I mean, we absolutely do not. Just from a uh, a life and property damage standpoint, mm -hmm. we we don't want to. But they're also, you know, we. I mean, listen, there's nothing cooler than being out, you know, tuna fishing at the canyon and having a whole bunch of humpbacks and pilot whales one. around you. I mean, it's just, you know, and then running back in after the trip and, you know, having, you know, bottlenose dolphins in your wake. It's just a really special thing, you know. So well we are absolutely committed to helping where we can with the outlook for right whales. John, what what can what can our listeners and readers what can they do to to fight back about this? against the proposal? So what they can do right now, um, and I wish I, I could provide a link over yeah, we'll this. Link, we'll definitely uh, link this, it up. Okay, okay, good, because it's kind of hard for me to, yeah. to read out yeah, no worries. <laughs> a long URL. HTTP. But, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Really, if they, if they go to the proposed rule that's in the Federal Register Notice, there'll be an option to, to submit comments. And, and I think it's important for people just to um, submit real you know kind of real life information about you know the perhaps the number of trips they take a year you know what size boat they operate you know have they had any whale encounters i mean mm -hmm. providing that kind of information is really what noaa is looking for okay um and also just you know again you know re reaffirming this idea that there are alternatives that we should be pursuing and looking at not just moving forward with this Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. I would also absolutely reach out to your member of Congress mm -hmm. because, you know, this is ultimately driven by two laws, you know, two important laws that were passed by Congress, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, sometimes laws, you know, they may have a really good and valid intent, right, such as the Endangered Species yeah. Act and the Marine Mammal Protection mm -hmm. Act. But there's always this side of that law, you know, where interpretation becomes and implementation becomes something that Point. is questionable, you know. And I think this is a case where we have Office of Protected Resources perhaps moving forward without considering other alternatives that would be beneficial. So I think that's the message we want to send to our members of Congress is that, you know, let's put a pause on this for now. This proposed rule is is not looking like it's very reasonable. Mm -hmm. Let's let's put a pause. Let's, you know, kind of bring in stakeholders and the public and figure out a way of moving forward with something that makes much more sense. Okay. Now that uh that's all great advice. Now but let me ask you one more thing just for my own for clarification. So the let's say the comment period ends at the end of October. Besides reaching out to your congressperson or leaving these comments, there's no other real check in this process, right? You, it could be this could be something that is enacted what 30 days after the comment period yeah so when the pump when the comment period ends the agency will have an obligation to review all the comments and respond to them in aggregate of the themes that are mm -hmm. uh, expressed in those comments not every single individual comment so they will have to respond to that then they will issue a final rule and I believe after 30 days that final rule can be enacted so it okay. will take a little bit of time from the close of the comment period, but all indications that we've gotten from Office of Protected Resources that they are very eager to do this. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, they want to get it done as soon as possible. So that's another thing that just really bothers us in the sense that, it's getting you know, rushed. Yeah. yeah, this thing is just being pushed so quickly. Um, and sometimes, you know, 
that can really put blinders on the managers, you know, and, and it can really narrow their focus on the end goal without looking at things that could be brought into the discussion that would be extremely helpful. Now that's, that's a good point. And really just, I wanted to reemphasize that, that last point that this is, this is a very real threat. This has a very real likelihood of, of being enacted. Now there's a lot of questions like we talked about, about enforcement and, and the future of it, but uh, this is, this is very real and something that could have a devastating impact on our industry. Absolutely. Yeah. People really need to be watching this and weighing in. They really need to be. Well, John, you really helped answer a lot of questions. I really appreciate the level-headed clarity and the common sense solutions that you've been bringing to this and, and helping all the awareness that you've helped raise so far. Hopefully, uh, you know, we'll, we'll definitely keep watching this proposal and we'll keep, keep our audience and our readers up to date best we can. But, uh, we might need to pick this up again at some point as this as this story develops. Yeah, that'd be great. And thank you so much for the time, Dan, and, and bringing attention to this issue. Um, you know, this is something that is is probably the biggest you know regulation that will ever be imposed on the recreational boating community. So it's something people absolutely have to be aware of. Couldn't agree more. John, thank you very much for your time, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. I'll talk to you Good soon. Talking to you. All right, bye. bye. I'd like to thank John again for his time and helping us to understand this uh, very concerning proposal. Like John said, one of the best things we could do is leave a comment or write a letter to your congressperson or leave a comment on Noah's site, which I strongly encourage. I just finished doing the the same, and I thought I'd end this episode here with, with my open letter to Noah. For as long as I remember, Marine Magazines and Noah have enjoyed a strong professional relationship because of the alignment of our values. Your work in regulating safe seafood, protecting estuaries, providing hurricane forecasting, navigational support, tide and current data, etc. is greatly appreciated by the boating community. It's from this place of respect that I'm surprised to learn about this rush proposal from NOAA Fisheries to enact a speed reduction policy that will devastate commercial and recreational boating industries with a flawed plan to preserve the declining population of North Atlantic right whales. As you aptly illustrate on your homepage, the U.S. fishing industry accounts for, quote, 1.2 million commercial jobs, 553,000 recreational jobs, $165 billion in commercial sales, and $89 billion in recreational sales, end quote. These numbers say nothing about the hardworking men and women that have had the privilege to meet in the recreational boating industry. Having been born into boating and being lucky enough to work my dream job as the editor-in-chief of Power Motor Yacht, I've had the chance to meet dockhands, marina managers, boat builders, engine manufacturers, text designers, boat show assemblers, captains, CEOs, receptionists, delivery drivers, tugboat operators, harbor pilots, waterborne first responders, and so many others. The men and women in the marine industry come from all walks of life, but there's one through line of the most people I've had the chance to meet. They love being part of the boating industry. They love playing a role in a pastime that brings joy to so many, a pastime that brings people together better than any other hobby I know. I respect the work you're doing to preserve the dying population of right whales. More than any other demographic, boaters are the ones who care for the ocean and its many mammals the most. I personally will never forget sitting on the bow of my parents' 26-foot sea ray off Cape Cod and seeing humpback whales for the first time. It's a memory I'll never forget, and one I hope to replicate with my young son and guy willing his children one day. I support your mission, but you're treating boaters as the enemy in this fight when we should be looked at as your greatest ally and resource. Please push off this disastrous plan that could cripple the industry I love and give us a seat at the table. 
I'm standing by and will make myself available to contribute to any common sense solution at your convenience. Thank you for your time and hopefully your honest consideration. Devotion